Well, I have to tell you, that was a lively um, Sunday school time. It actually reminds me of my home because um, I feel like we have our own Sunday school in our home. We, um, we, we have nine children, which is quite amazing. We didn't plan on having nine. We just woke up one day and there were nine. <laughs> my, um, my middle daughter, we have three daughters. Our oldest is Katie, and then we had about 10 years, and we had another daughter. Her name, her name is Maggie, and I call her Margarita for short. And then, uh, then we had another 10 years, and then we have uh, Gracie. And so, uh, um, obviously, we were going for a lot more girls, see. But uh, we didn't, we have six men and three women. But one day, my middle daughter was watching a TV show on Discovery Channel. And the show, if, you, uh, if you've ever seen it, was on the McDougar family, or the Duger family. Duggar family, yeah, that's them. From Arkansas. And they have like 21 and a half children or something, I don't know. <laughs> and, um, and so this, my daughter, she's watching the show, and she's just kind of Maggie. She's just mesmerized, you know. And, and the thing goes to some kind of commercial. And Maggie, she doesn't even break eye contact with the show or the TV. And she speaks while still looking at the, at the TV. And she says, Mama... And my wife, she's in the kitchen. The rooms are kind of connected, and her name is Janet. She goes, Mama, yes, Maggie, how come we don't have a large family? (laughs) My wife, I had to do CPR on her. (laughs) She comes to, she says, you don't think we have a large family? Well, we don't have 19 children like they do, Mama. We need more kids. I'll talk to your father about that. <laughs> so yeah, this morning reminds me a lot of my home. So I'd like to um, discuss with you something that is, um, well, to be quite honest with you, it's, it's like a bottle of water. When you're thirsty, you need this. And, the, and the, the word that I have in mind is the word that I have on the screen behind me, and it's forgiveness. Forgiveness. There have been times in my uh, fatherhood that I have made great mistakes. Uh, Those of you who are fathers here, if you've not made mistakes yet, you just don't know what mistakes you have made. But I've made some great mistakes. And I have had to go to my children Now, when you have nine kids, it's going to each one individually. By the ninth one, you never want to make that mistake again. But I've gone to my children, and I've I've confessed to them what Dad has done wrong. And I so yearn for them to say three words, or or two words, really. I, for three words, I forgive you. I ache for that. I long for that. And I'll never forget... That time I went to my daughter and I was so wrong in my reaction, in my attitude, in my anger, and I confessed it to her and I said, and I was wrong and I couldn't even get out the question, will you forgive me? She burst out in tears, she threw her arms around me and she says, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. And all of a sudden, in an instant, in a moment, in a precious, single, solitary second, our relationship, our, our, our union, our bond is immediately restored. Those are the most precious words the human soul 
can ever hear. You're forgiven. Now, what I'd like to do today in the somewhat time left is I'd like to look at the concept of forgiveness from the Word of God. And in so doing, I'm going to look at it from three different vantage points. And first, we're going to talk about its uh, definition. Actually, there will be four, but I can't remember the fourth right now. We're going to look at its definition. Then we're going to look at its, its, uh, its understanding from a different angle in the book of Romans at chapter 8 and verse 1. And then we're going to look at it from a portion of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 10. And so when you think about this, you want to think about forgiveness or a concept from the Word of God, kind of like you're looking at a diamond. And at each angle of that diamond, when you look at it, you'll get a different array of color. And that's exactly what we're going to try to do today. So if you could bear with me, we're just going to take a gentle stroll through the Scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, let's begin by uh, talking about Ephesians chapter 2 there, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, forgiveness. Uh, I misquoted again. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we want to start. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. I'm going to read this verse with you, and I want you to follow along if you have your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, please look uh, next to you to someone. I want you to see this from God's Word and not from my lips. If you don't know where it is in the Bible, don't worry about that. Someone can help you. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. It's in the about the uh, last quarter of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this word forgiveness here means something very unique in the New Testament. It means to send away. There are several words that are translated in the Bible and the Greek language into English as the word forgiveness. But this particular word is the most common, to send away, to release, to let go. Very important concept to understand. Now, I put here on this this slide a portion of Scripture that uses the same word out of Luke chapter 4. Now, the reason why I chose this is because it had to do with medicine, and that's kind of important to me. So, when the Lord Jesus was standing over, and this is an artist's rendition, over the mother-in-law of Peter. Obviously, they were hungry that day. They needed some food. So, they went in, and she was ill, and she had a high fever, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, so he, the, the fever left her. That word left in the New Testament is the same word as to send away or to forgive. Now, this is kind of um, a vivid concept for me, because on most days, or, or on other days of my week, I would practice medicine. Some of you may not know that, so I mention that not for your uh, impression, not to impress you, but simply to tell you that I have patients that come in, like my brother here. In fact, I remember when you were in Kansas City. Yes, you were uh, handsome then and handsome now. (laughs) I almost choked myself in that moment. But when a patient comes in to see me, one of the things they want to do is they want to be uh, rid of their symptoms. 
And I tell you, there's been more than one patient that comes in to see me and they say, Doctor, I'm, I'm coughing, I'm running a fever. If you don't know it, it's flu season. We're seeing buckets of flu. And am I achy all over? And, and I, I want to get, can you give me anything to make this go away? And I listen and I do a flu swab, which is a medieval torture test through the nose. And, and, uh, and we uh, pull it out. We get a positive study and I put them on Tamiflu or something like that. And the goal is to send it away. The idea is for it not to come back. But let me tell you, the next week they come in and they say, Doctor, I was better for a few days, but now I'm sick again. What kind of quack are you anyway? The idea is you don't want it coming back. This is the concept, at least for me, when it comes to the idea of forgiveness. And I think you can make a great case, a tremendous picture of this from the Word of God that shows what God means when He sends your sins away. Let's look at that for a brief moment. We're going to begin talking about that from the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 10. I'd like you to turn there. Now, we have several scriptures to turn to, so please don't get frustrated if it's, if it's unfamiliar territory for you. Just you can, I've tried to put them up on the screen, at least what I'd like you to remember, but I'll read extra. Psalm 103, and we're going to read around verse 10. And I'm going to read in verse 10 where it says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. He's sent them away. Now, it's predicated, it's built upon something that's unique about God, and what it's built on is His mercy. For as the, high, for as the heavens are high above the earth. So when you leave today, you go outside, you look up in the heavens, and you want to pull out your yardstick, and you want to measure how far the heavens are above, and the idea is you can't. It's immeasurable. And he says, as high as the heavens are above, so, is, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. And notice what it says in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, that's a unique concept. Release so it doesn't come back. To separate, to, to take away, to send away. And what he's saying is this. Your sins are a commodity of your soul. And I'm going to take those sins and I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to release you from it. And I'm going to send it away so that you never come across it again. And that's the idea when you send something eastward and something westward. The idea is that they'll never cross paths again. This is what he's saying in a very poetic way. But there's a graphic picture for us in the Old Testament that illustrates this same concept. And what I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to go to the day of Yom Kippur. Now, Yom Kippur is today a Jewish holiday. It's one of the most important days in the Orthodox Jew's life. And even if you're non-Orthodox, it's very important. And the, it's, a, it's, it's built on the passage. It's the day of atonement as given to us in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, for this portion, you may turn there if you like, but I'd like to explain a little bit about it. On this particular day, uh, and I won't cover all the facts, it's quite intrinsic, it's quite an intricate of what happens, but on this particular day, the high priest in the Old Testament, you know, back then you had this, this tabernacle, if you recall, it's basically a large tent, and, and in that tent you'd have uh, two quarters, the first two-thirds was called the holy place, 
And the latter third from the door was called the Holy of Holies. So think of it as a small building, but it was really made out of, of animal skins. It was tent. It was, it was a tent. It was mobile. It could be collapsed and carried. That was the idea. But God wanted to dwell with his people, and so he gave instructions, to very, very detailed instructions on the uh, format and blueprint of this structure. And so in the first half or the first two-thirds of the tent, you would have certain pieces of furniture which God had given instruction on what to make. And on the second third of the, of the, of the, um, uh, the last third of the structure was a place where the Ark of the Covenant lived. That's where it would dwell, as it were. The Ark of the Covenant is, uh, is something that uh, Hollywood has stolen, and they have, not literally, but in concept, and they made movies about this kind of thing. And you'll see the Ark of the Covenant with this kind of a gold box with angelic-like figures on the top, which is a solid piece of gold, according to the Bible. And, and it, it, had, it would be the place where God would dwell between those two angelic uh, figures uh, that made out of gold and those figures were called the cherubim and so what would happen on this particular day of the year was the high priest the one in charge of caring for for the duties of such a tabernacle he was the one that was to enter into that most holy place if i were where the ark of the covenant was it was normally or would be there's no light in that compartment the only light would be the presence of god which would illuminate that portion of the blueprint and so he would change his clothes from normally the ornate high priestly clothes with all the stones that had been embedded on the front of the outfit with all the sashes and all the beautiful uh, embroidery he would change into only white linen in other words he'd look ordinary really relatively unnoticed and on this particular day, he would have a couple of animal sacrifices, and this is in Leviticus 16. And in particular, there was two. There were so were selected two goats. That sounds kind of gruesome if you've never heard of this before. But this was this was how God was painting a picture, and I'm explaining it to show the picture of forgiveness. And what you do with one of those goats is you would go the people and all they put their hands on the animal as if we were putting our sins, transferring our sins upon this animal, and the animal would be sacrificed. And you would take some of that blood of that animal, believe it or not, and you'd go into the most holy place, the, the last third of this tent-like structure, and it says that you would place it on and before the Ark of the Covenant seven times, and it says there that he would, he would, ha he would have mercy upon you. And the picture is simple, that without blood being shed there can be no forgiveness of sins now to complete the picture you would take the second goat again confession made upon that animal and then you would take this second goat and it says in the bible that you would release the goat into a desolate place now what does it mean by that it means this that the animal that you would release is not to be found again. Desolate means you wouldn't have, you wouldn't cross paths. You see, and this is what God is doing. He's or He's giving us a picture from the Old Testament of this concept of releasing, that the sins are uh, this, that 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 sin requires the death of the of the of the uh, guilty, and yet what God would do is He would take a substitute like the Lord Jesus and allow Him to bear your guilt and be. 
executed for our sins. He, in turn, takes your sins and sends them away like the goat that goes into the wilderness. And this is exactly what is being depicted, perhaps, in a pictures like this. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering and bring its blood inside the veil. Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat, confess all the iniquities and all transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head, and shall send it away into the wilderness, and the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. What a beautiful picture. Now, this is one angle of the concept of forgiveness. Your sins are released. Every one of you that have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, this is the water bottle you drink every day. It's like oxygen to your soul. When it's not there, you know it, right? It's a beautiful thing. The problem that we have as those who are now Christians in title, we have this statement given to us, you are Christ-like ones. The problem that we have is an age-old problem. That although our God has seen fit, if you trust Him as your Savior, the Lord Jesus as your Savior, our God has seen fit to send your sins away so that they would not come across your path again, our problem is simple. That we have trouble interacting with each other in the same capacity. How many times where you have confessed and said, Oh God, I've sinned, I I confess before you and you cleanse me of all unrighteousness and we turn around and we cannot forgive your fellow brother and sister in the Lord Jesus Christ and we allow their sin and, and their person to cross paths again. And how do we allow that? We bring it up. That is not how you've been forgiven, is it? Not at all. Let's now look at another vantage point, another view of the diamond. Let's turn and look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 is uh, written in the middle of a large letter. I like it when Paul writes letters. You see how few words I've written you. Few words? It's like a book! What are you talking? It's a short novel. Well, Paul writes this in the middle of this letter and realize that I am entering into several series of arguments that he has made along the way. And as we get to this point in this particular portion of the Bible, Romans chapter 8, again, if you're looking for that in the scriptures, it's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's just barely into the New Testament, chapter 8, verse 1. As we look at the argument, Paul has just talked about things that that are cumbersome, that are difficult for him in the Christian life. And he speaks in the present tense of what sounds to me like ongoing struggle. And he comes to verse 8, and he says something that's so... Excuse me, comes to chapter 8, verse 1, and he says something very telling. And I want you to read it. Now, if you have your Bible, please follow along, and I'm going to read it slowly with deliberate method. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk 
but according to the Spirit. Now, I want you to look at the word, the words which I bolded up here. No condemnation. There's one place there's no conviction. It's in Jesus Christ. The word, the phrase, no condemnation, comes literally, as I've tried to depict with this scene here, from the courtroom uh, type of terminology of that day. It comes from that setting. It would be the kind of words that you would use in our judicial system, like justice and indictment, uh, a hearing. Those are all words that we associate with the legal profession. And this phrase, no condemnation, is of the same type of, of, uh, of category. It's from that idea of a courtroom setting. Now, I'd like to tell you at this point a story of how I feel God was teaching me this phrase. How many of you ever gotten a ticket? How many of you ever gotten more than one ticket? <laughs> yeah, I've gotten several, um, actually. I personally believe that cars are meant to go fast, so that's what I think. Um, in fact, just, just a little aside, one day I, got, I had been stopped so many times, and maybe you don't do this, brother, but I do. Uh, I just politely informed them that I'm just either on my way or leaving the hospital. That always seems to go well. And uh, one day I'm driving home. It's like midnight, and I'm tired, and, and I'm just I'm, I want to get home, go to bed. And I got stopped, and the guy and I says, "Oh, I'm sorry." You know, it's, we always say, that. Oh, "I'm sorry." I'm just leaving the hospital. It was several years ago. And he goes, um, he goes, uh, "Oh, oh, you, you're 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 one of the ER doctors." Yes, yes. I, glad you noticed, actually. And, and he said, uh, you know, we don't ticket the doctors here. You just be careful now, sir. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're such a good man and everything. The next week, I'm going by the same place. I have to get gas. I come to the stoplight. I, I'm pretty sure I stopped, but I, obviously I didn't. And I sort of rolled through it. The officer comes up behind me at the gas station. The lights are on, you know, and I'm looking around like maybe there's a break-in. And he walks up to me. Yeah, sir, you uh, rolled through that stoplight back there. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just leaving the... Hey, you're Dr. Price. I stopped you last week. Oh, yeah, you did, yeah. And he goes like this. Dispatch, this is just a warning. So he let me off again. But one day, I'm tooling down 87th Street going westbound while the sun is in my eyes. <laughs> I go through the light, which I'm pretty sure was yellow. At least it looked yellow to me. <laughs> and I get pulled over. The officer stops me and he says to me, Sir, you ran a red light. I, I, I thought it was yellow. No, it was red. I'm pretty sure it was yellow. Sir, it was red. Okay, but it looked yellow to me. Sir. <laughs> You're thinking, what a stupid idiot. <laughs> Sir, you can contest this ticket if you want. It's your right as a citizen. It is. Give me that ticket. I got that ticket, and I'm looking it over, and I see what he said, and I'm driving back, and I got a ticket. I can't believe I got a ticket. So I'm thinking, well, it says the court date. I'm going to go in. And you know what? I do. In our particular little city, Overland Park, the courtroom is in the basement of City Hall. It's um, probably, this is an odd-shaped building, but 
it's roughly the size of this way. And I realize that in the United States, the only other purchaser of pews are the courts. Because it looks like a church building. We've got pews over there and pews over there. And, I, and you walk down the center aisle and you've got a podium that is four times the size. And it, the judge is right up there like that. And he is towering above and he's standing up there. Forgive me here. Standing up there and people would come up. And there is a, there, over there on the side was the uh, prosecutor attorney's uh, table. And, and there's people scattered here and there. And the judge, he's got the bifocal thing. You know, he looks so austere and unapproachable. And he's towering above everybody. And you hear, crack the gavel. And, you know, and I'm walking in the back door like this. And I'm looking around. And, and I kind of take my little seat by myself. And I look around and I see different pockets of humanity. I see people over on the side. Some of them are crying. I look over there. There's some very well-dressed lawyers. And they're telling them in their, in their fashion, you do this and you do that, we'll get you out of here. And I look over and there's other people who are just so despondent. And I'm seeing all types of flavors of humanity as they're facing the judge. And I walk in and I sit down and I realize that I'm in deep trouble because just as about the time I sit down, this is a true story, there's another physician who doesn't know me, but I know him. And he walks up and the assistant prosecuting attorney, she's kind of like a pit bull. And she is chewing this guy out. And your honor, this man is a nasty man and he should never, and you should, and I'm going, I'm so dead. I should I, I'll never see my wife and kids again. And I, I, I'm, you know, now I'm crying, you know, I'm going, oh, what a stupid idea. Just pay the dumb fine, you know, and I just, in about that time in my misery, I hear Stephen Price. Uh, yes. So I get out and I kind of, you know, down the aisle. And I stand before the judge. It's one of the most horrific experiences of my life. And I'm looking way up at this guy. And, and you know, you, and what do you do? You try to act nice. <laughs> you know, you smile big. You act like you're humble. You know, yes, your honor, your worthiness, your uh, whateverness. And he says, Mr. Price, the officer who get, uh, issued you the citation was not informed to be at this uh, at this uh, hearing. Would you be able to wait 15 minutes? And then he glares at the pit bull, and I'm going, eh. <laughs> and, I, and what do you say? You say, uh, uh, no, I'm on a tight timetable here. Come on. You, know, I, you don't do that. You, you humbly say, of course you're a worthiness person, you. And you sit down, and, and you watch as, as more people are getting slaughtered in front of the judge. And, and next thing you know, my name is called, and he calls me up, and I'm standing before the judge, and he's looking down at me. And, and it happens, and now it's so surreal. It's, it's like in slow motion. And Mr. Price, the officer, texted, and he said he cannot make it back here for this hearing, so I am throwing your ticket out. And I mean, he said the word out, and the gavel went up, the gavel went down. Crack! Case closed! I'm so shocked. I thought I was going to die. And I'm just like, I'm like this. I, and I'm, just, I'm just looking at him. And he looks down after a few seconds over his bifocals. It seemed like an eternity. And he says, sir, you can go now. I'm still dumbfounded. I'm looking. I'm saying, don't I need to pay something? And he smiled real big, of course. 
He says, no. That's the exit sign. Literally, that's the exit sign. And I go, that's it? Yes. Thought, well, thanks for the conversation. And so I walk out, and I'm walking in the pit bull. You know, I kind of, you know, and I go right past, right out the door. And out the door, it says cashier. I have my paperwork. I lay it on the counter. I whip out my checkbook. I said, now, what do I owe you? And she looks at me like I'm dumber than a brick. Nothing? You mean I don't owe you anything? It's like the sixth time. Sir, you, you're done. See ya. I get out. I'm in my car and I'm driving. I'm going, oh, this is great. I, can, I didn't get what did it to happen. And, now, and I felt like the spirit of God was tapped, not literally. But I felt like, Steve, there's more to it than that. And this is what's to it. That in my life and in your life, we are called before the Supreme Court Justice of the Universe. And our case is brought into that most important realm of the court. And the judge of all time sits exactly in that position. And for a moment as I drove home, I just imagined this. And Steve, that's where you were. And you were guilty. And you stood there before the judge and there's nothing you could do. And out from the back, the doors swing open and somebody comes in. He's your attorney. He's your advocate. And he approaches the bench and he says, Your Honor, may I, may I approach the bench? I have, I have evidence today that will be submitted on behalf of my client, Mr. Price. And I would like to submit that to you to this hour. And may I approach the bench? And so he approaches the Supreme Court justice of all time. And as he does, he begins to unbutton his shirt and his sleeves. And I begin to notice, I begin to notice the angry, gnarly scars that have riddled and tattooed his back. I begin to see with greater greater clarity the scars of thorns that had pierced his, his scalp. And he says to my he says to the judge, Your Honor. I submit before you today evidence that will forgive my client. And he stands between the eyesight of the judge and the eyesight of me so that I am no longer in view. And as he turns and shows the judge all the evidence, my honor, the judge of all time, reaches for the gavel. It goes up, it goes down, it cracks the table, and he says, Case closed! Your sins are forgiven, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's forgiveness, is it not? We have a problem. What if, what if somebody produced more evidence? What if, what if the accuser of the brethren, the only one with that title, I might add, comes and he says, listen, your honor, there is more evidence. I, I have it on, 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 on video. It's on my cell phone. I, that's not true, but, you know, it's right here. There's more evidence to show. And the, the judge of all time will check the record and he'll look at it. And he says, no, there will be no evidence that will be allowed for his case. The case has been closed. It is sealed. It is unalterable. I will not hear any more evidence for whatever evidence is available has already been taken care of by the submission of his advocate to the court. The evidence, the proof 
that he is righteous in the eyes of the law, case will remain closed. It will not be appealed. That's how you're forgiven. That's what it means, no condemnation. Here's the issue. How is it, my fellow believers, that you and I can be in the position of no condemnation, but we still condemn? For some reason, there is a disconnect between how we've been forgiven and how we forgive others. Let's look at the third window, the third vantage point of forgiveness. Before I go there, this is a verse that is in the book of Colossians. It says this, He has forgiven you of all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the document or requirements that was against you, which was contrary to us, having nailed it to the cross never to come up again. Now the third or the last vantage point I want to emphasize comes from Hebrews chapter 10. Would you turn there for me? It's just, it's just a short little verse and one of our brothers actually read it this morning. I, I appreciated it. This is in the passage of book that's describing the superiority of the Lord Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done in comparison to several figures of the Bible, Moses and Joshua, angelic hosts, in particular Aaron and the priesthood of the Levites. And, and what God does is he says at this juncture of the letter, he says, you know, God is making a new covenant. It's a new agreement. It's a new understanding. It's a new, new thing. You see, in the first covenant, it, 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 there was requirements, but there was nothing given to the uh, to, to you and I, to the human race, to keep those requirements. In that sense, it has, a, it has an element of inferiority. It wasn't that, that it was poorly thought out. It was, it was made with this knowledge that there was no way you could keep it. That was by design, according to the book of Romans. The Old Covenant was really to show you that you can't keep the law. Not that there's a possibility of keeping the law, but you can't keep the law. And so what God does, He says, is I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And this time, I'm going to assume everything necessary that it takes to forgive you of your sins. Now, let's read the terms of that new covenant. I'd like to be re reading in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. And I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. What is this idea of forgiveness and you are, or remembering no more? Does it mean that you just forget? Is that what it means? No. I would submit to you that forgiveness of this in this description is really what I could call an eclipse. You see, when I go home, hopefully tomorrow morning, I'll get home and I'll empty my pockets. It turns out I have a lot of junk in my pockets. 
and I'll put them on my table and I'll have my keys and my wallet and everything that it takes to travel, breath mints, of course, and I'll put them all right there and I'll come and I'll go and I'll greet my family, I'll kiss each child, I'll love them and just squeeze the stuffing out of Mrs. Wonderful and I'll come back and I'll say, who took my keys? You ever do that? Yeah, it's not, where did I put my keys? It's, who took them? Right? How many men have done this in your life? All of you have done it. All right? And so I, 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 don't get, I don't plan tomorrow morning when I catch the flight, when I get home, I don't plan to say, oh, I can't wait, what a great day. I'm going to purposely forget my keys. Okay? If you hear me say that, I'm in bad trouble. One day, we left one of our children. We have nine. Actually, we left him twice, but I'll just tell you, the one time, we left him at the chapel. And we jump in the car. We were at the time, we were driving two cars to our, uh, to our church because, you know, we're a big family. We had too many vans, and we were using them all. And so we're all in the car, and I jump in my car, and she jumps in her car, and she's about three minutes ahead, and I'm in my, and I get my phone rings. And it says, Mrs. Wonderful. I said, hey, honey, do you have so-and-so? Now, that's men when you know, don't say anything. That's <laughs> uh, what I said. Um, no. Go back and get your son. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Wheel that car around. And you know, he's just having... I did not get up in the morning and say, Honey, this was a great day. I'm going to forget Andrew, okay? <laughs> she, she definitely knows I would have forgotten to take my medication or something. <laughs> See, that's how we forget. It just comes off the table of our memory. It falls off the table and, and it's just out of sight, out of mind. Not so with God. How is it that you've got the God who is all-knowing and the God who is all-powerful, how can he not remember something? And this is what I think he does. He allows his all-powerfulness to eclipse his all-knowledge and so that when they line up, the thing that disappears is my sin. That's forgiveness. And every one of you who have trusted Christ as Savior have that the kind of forgiveness where he sends it away so it doesn't come back. The kind of forgiveness where there's therefore now no condemnation in the court of heaven. And the kind of forgiveness where he takes all that he is and allows it to overshadow all that it is, all of his knowledge so that when the two are added up, the only thing missing on purpose is your sin. Now that is a great salvation of course there's a little bit of a dilemma how is it that God can take and eclipse my sin and yet I tend to remember everybody else's sin forevermore is that how you've been forgiven no that is not how we've been forgiven let me close with this story. It's, it's in the Bible. It's in Luke 7. The Lord Jesus had been invited to a dinner. I'm sorry, I'm messing up the mic there. The Lord Jesus had been invited to a dinner. It was in a, a Simon. He was a Pharisee. It means that he really was quite abreast or quite, quite structured in the law. He knew it well. 
And it seems to me from the text that the Lord Jesus was invited not as a friend, but really as um, to try to either to impress him or foil him. So the Lord Jesus was was invited to this house. And, and the dinner parties in those days are quite unique, you know, kind of low tables. And you would sit in a lounging way. Now, I'm from, my, my mother is Japanese. My brother, Sabasa, I think we're twins, you know, I think we're, we're we, I appreciate it. And we would sit in Japan, we'd sit at tables near the ground, and you would sit on some pillows and with your knees underneath you. And that always hurt to do that for very long. But the idea is you kind of would recline just a little bit. And that would be sort of the Mideastern idea. You'd sort of recline at the table, and it was a long dinner process. And usually you'd be sort of in a rectangular or uh, a square-shaped-like thing. And so all the disciples were there. And in particular, during that, in that, that time of cust- or that custom of the hour, um, those who were from the community could come and watch you and sort of eavesdrop on your conversations and watch the celebrities of the day. And believe me, the Lord Jesus had celebrity status. He was well known for his miracles and feeding and all that kind of stuff. So the Lord Jesus was kind of uh, the buzz of the town. Now, Pappen, in this particular day, this unnamed woman comes to the same dinner. Normally, she wouldn't come because, after all, you would be going to the house... You would be going to the house of, of a, notary, a notable person. And Simon obviously was a notable person. And so Simon says to himself, or excuse me, during the course of the dinner, this woman who is quite a, a, a unrespect, disrespectful individual gets up and goes to the feet of the Lord Jesus, which seems to be readily available, especially given the kind of lounging-like posture they would have for dinner. And she begins to weep. And she begins to collect her tears and use those tears, if I may, to bathe the feet of the Lord Jesus. Because it was custom in that day that after you walked on those dirty roads, you would then wash the feet of your guests or have them washed, usually by a servant or the youngest child in the house. You'd have them washed and so that then we could then go into the house and participate with, as it were, clean feet. Well, this wasn't done this particular day. And she takes this upon herself and she does it. Now, the Lord Jesus, he says to her, or excuse me, Simon says, man, if this person were a prophet or someone really of God, he would know what kind of woman, ew, that's touching him. Now, I love the Lord Jesus. What poise. You know, if I knew knew some guy was thinking that, I'd let him have it. The Lord Jesus says, Simon, may I ask you a question? Very, very, very gracious. And Simon, almost somewhat indignant, says, Rabbi, say ah, meaning give me your best shot. And so he says, listen, one person owed 500 denarii and the other 50. There was 10 times difference in the debt. And they both could not pay... So the master freely forgave them both. Which one would love more? And the, the Simon says, I can see this. Well, I suppose, that's my Jewish-British accent. I suppose it would be the one who whom he forgave more. I can just see all the house. Bravo! Bravo! Good one! Good one, Simon! 
That's not in the text. I added all of that. The Lord Jesus says, you have answered well. And then he looks at the woman and says to Simon, that's what it says. He looks at the woman. Don't you like how God works? I'm looking at the sinner. And I'm addressing the critics. Do you see this woman? Because let me tell you, Simon, what you haven't seen. What you haven't seen is the woman who came in who, who washed my feet. You never washed my feet. She is anointing me with oil. You've never done that, Simon. Simon, you missed everything that should be done, and she took care of it for me. And she's doing this because of her sins. She recognizes before me what has happened in her life and her soul, and she is here, in essence, worshiping me, thanking me for the forgiveness of sins. And he says to her, Your sins are Forgiven. The most precious word that woman has ever heard. And I look forward to hearing her testimony face to face at that marriage supper of the Lamb. Are your sins forgiven? Maybe, maybe you haven't experienced the blessedness of what it means to have your sins forgiven. Psalm chapter 99, verse 8, says this about God, the God who forgives. I would suggest to you that if you are here and your sins are not forgiven, you can be forgiven of your sins today. Not this afternoon, not at 6 o'clock tonight, right now, 1224. And Christian... Your sins have been forgiven. And I would like to suggest to you that we likewise forgive one another. Our Heavenly Father, we would like to thank you for this moment where we have had to just gaze in the Word of God. And upon gazing upon this beautiful, this beautiful uh, uh, sunset of, of truth, we find the colors of who you are and what you've done to be so glorious. We simply say, oh God, help us to know, taste, and experience freshly the beautiful truths of your word. Quench our souls and let us be able to take that quenching bottle of truth out to the world. So much so we can't hold it in. And Father, perhaps, perhaps there's a soul right now whose life is destitute and has been rawly treated and undone like this woman at Simon's house. And they long to hear the words of forgiveness. Oh, Father, show them Christ. Show them your Son, who was the one who shed his own blood so that sins can be forgiven, who was raised from the dead so that it's perfectly justifiable and that in the court of heaven it's an unalterable an alterable conclusion for our faith or for our lives. Father, we ask you, take that truth home to a thirsty soul today. In Jesus' name, amen.